Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. The following recording is from our Sunday morning gathering. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Amen. Well, guys, as a church family, we've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we've been kind of approaching this letter Um, of Paul's with the understanding, the mentality that it was actually a letter of correction that Paul was writing to the church that he planted. Um, There were a number of issues that were taking place, things that needed to be addressed that uh, really provoked the apostle to bring some correction, to initiate some change. And uh, he writes this letter in response to reports that he had received about things that were slightly amiss or not even just slightly amiss, there were some things that were really uh, blatantly wrong um, that needed to be addressed. And so that's where we get this heartbeat of a letter from Paul to the church that he planted. But uh, we've been talking about how uh, Corinth is essentially the first time Paul's theology has had an opportunity to be fleshed out Um, in practical everyday life. And what I mean by that is that the believers in Corinth, they're first generation Christians, right? These are brand new followers of Jesus. They didn't grow up in the church. They didn't have parents or grandparents that had been saved the entirety of their known lives. These These are fresh converts that are new to this way of following Jesus. In fact, the whole idea of church is brand new to most of them. Um, Because not all of them were Jewish believers. They come from Greek and Roman backgrounds. Um, But there's this kind of just a a melting pot that is taking place in Corinth. We've talked a little bit about the history and things in previous messages. Um, But essentially what we have is this kind of culmination of people that are brand new to following Jesus. And Paul sets out to answer this question of what does it look like to actually live like a Christian? Because there's, there's all kinds of different pulling philosophies and, and things that are vying for the attention of the Corinthians. And uh, just the, the overarching big picture question that we've kind of examined here with 1 Corinthians is, what does it mean to look and live like a Christian? Because Paul is less concerned about what the Corinthians know theologically and more concerned about what they do as a result of that knowledge. It is not enough to just know that Jesus is the Messiah, but how does that knowledge transform your everyday life? That is what Paul is getting at here. That's one of the things that he's fleshing out. He's saying that it's good that you know the answers, but knowing the answers, if it doesn't actually equate into the the evidence of a transformed life, is worthless. Knowing the right things about Jesus, but not living like you know them, is worthless. Does that make sense? And Paul is addressing the Corinthian church in this way. So last week we made it through the first four verses of chapter three, and so I guess technically we've spent the last two weeks hanging out in these first few verses of chapter three, and I reiterated Paul's desire for us to be spiritually mature, 
right? He equates that with unity in the body, right? We, we, we kind of contrasted that with Ephesians chapter 4. That's his desire for us. He admonishes us to grow up spiritually. And I did the same thing last week to, to stop making excuses for our lack of spiritual growth, for still being worldly is the way that Paul would put it. I shared this picture of, uh, of Jesus coming and setting us free from prison cells, right? I use this kind of picture and this analogy that a lot of us have experienced this freedom from God, but we haven't actually stepped out of the open prison door. We're, we're more comfortable in our bondage. We're more comfortable in our sin. And we've not taken the steps into freedom that Jesus has already paid for. And I go into a little more depth with that, and you'll hopefully see how that connects with where we're going here uh, throughout the rest of chapter 3, I was uh, sharing with my staff that I was a little self-conscious of the fact that I didn't get to finish my message last week because it almost seems like things were taken uh, a little disjointed or out of context because we didn't get to the culmination of what Paul finishes talking about in chapter 3, which we're going to get to today, which is uh, the judgment seat of Christ, which sounds heavy. And if you're listening to this and you're like, whoa, Pastor's talking about judgment today. Yes, we are. And it's going to be good, and I'm excited for it. But uh, I wrote this in kind of reference to where we were last week, that too many of us are content with our get-out-of-hell-free card, but not actually wanting to live like we've been set free. And uh, if there's one thing that maybe is the crux or the heart behind what we're talking about today, we'll, we'll kind of revisit this is that Jesus did so much more than just save us from hell. That's a big deal, and we, we, we're quick to, to make note of that. But if that's where we stop with our understanding of the cross, we're missing out on the life and life abundantly that Christ promised us. And so we're going to get into that. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to ask you guys to turn with me to verse 5. I'm going to do my very best to get through this chunk in this passage of Scripture. And so um, I'm excited for it. If you guys have missed any of our messages from this teaching series, uh, they are available online. They're available on our website, opendoorpagosa.com. We're on Apple iTunes. We're even cool with like the hipster kids now. We're on Spotify, right? We are on Spotify. Spotify? I don't know what that is, but <laughs> that, sounds like the, that sounds like the knockoff Dollar Tree version of Spotify. Um, anyway. We have podcasts out there. You guys can listen to them. We have a good friend, Daniel McLean, uh, who is a pastor. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, he was a pastor on staff here with us uh, for a number of years, great friend of ours. And uh, we got to talk to him this week, and he says he listens to me at three and a half times speed. And he says I, he can listen to my sermons in like five to ten minutes. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> I can't. I've listened to podcasts. I've listened to audiobooks at like the faster speed than normal, and I struggle to get anything that they say. And so every time Daniel says, hey, man, that was a really good word, I was like, what, what speed did you listen to it at? And he's like, three and a half times. He's like, did you get anything out of it? <laughs> Do you actually understand what I said, or are you just saying that so you can encourage me? 
Uh, I say that because he's going to be with us on November 19th, and I'm really excited. He's actually going to be sharing in the Sunday morning service. Some of you guys are really excited because you know who Pastor Daniel is. Uh, Some of you are like, I have no idea who you're talking about, but you should be excited because he's a brilliant Bible teacher, one of our best friends, and he will be here with his wife and his new baby that I have not yet met. And so I'm excited for what God's going to do there. It's going to be a good time. You guys don't want to miss the 19th. Not just because of Daniel, but also because of potlucks. It's going to be good. <laughs> Woo! Okay, you guys in, uh, you guys in verse 5, chapter 3? I'm going to read the rest of chapter 3 here, and then we're going to kind of break it down into more palatable chunks. And I'm excited for what God's going to do. But beginning in verse 5, it says, What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through, who you, through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So either the one who plants, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building." By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what, he has been, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple." Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or the life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. That's it. You guys got all that? Good? Ready to go home? Got it figured out? Cool. Well, we're going to outline just a few things here in this passage. I'm going to try to do my best to be a a good Bible teacher here, so you guys can track with me. I want us to all be on the same page. Um, In this passage, we see Paul utilize three different examples to illustrate the church. We see him capture, um, we, we see him compare us first to a field, right? Then we see him compare us to a building. And then ultimately, he compares us to the temple. Um, and then at the very end, he concludes with this charge not to be deceived by worldly wisdom. And so that's kind of the, the logical progression. And I'm saying that because we're actually going to tackle this chapter a little bit out of order. We're going to actually begin with the end and work our way backwards, and I'm hoping that it will make more sense to you because that's the way that it made most sense to me. And so uh, just looking here at the end, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 21, 
we see this charge not to deceive ourselves. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. And fools there is in those, uh, you know, air quotes, if you will. (laughs) For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. And we go on, and I, I just want to emphasize here that godly wisdom will always trump good advice. And they, they can sometimes be at odds with each other. Uh, I want to use an example here. Uh, my wife and I felt like we were supposed to sell our house a few years ago, right before COVID was a thing. And, uh, you know, we sought the Lord on it, and we asked God, like, what we were supposed to do, and we sold our house, and uh, we did okay on it. We didn't make a ton of money or anything like that, but we, we sold our house, and we moved into the parsonage here to uh, kind of fix things up, and obviously, we were responding to the Lord. But I was left, uh, you know, a year later when our house sold for double what we had initially sold it for when it reappeared on the market, that I was like, God, are you sure you told us? to sell our house? Like, what were you thinking? Like, what was that whole thing about? Because if we would have just waited another, like, nine months, maybe even another year, we could have, you know, we could have doubled our investment rather than just uh, kind of getting out of something. And so it was one of those things where I was left scratching my head. And and so, so you guys can understand my frustration here and my honest conversation with the Lord. We sold our house for like $260,000. And then the next time that it was listed in October of last year, it sold for 530 something thousand dollars. So we're talking about like literally more than double. And it's just got me scratching my head like, God, are you sure you told us to do that? And he, every time that I want to think about how that was a bad decision, <laughs> I come back to the Lord and he reminds me that he's the one that instructed us to do it. And he told us to do it. And he has been so faithful to provide over and over and over again that the only way that I can have peace about that whole situation is knowing that I was doing what God had asked us to do. And that's, that's the kind of godly wisdom that defies worldly logic. Does that make sense? Because worldly logic would have said, you know, we should have held on to it and turned it into a rental or whatever kind of thing you want to enter in here. And I'm not saying that godly wisdom always defies common sense, if you will, but it should always trump it. Does that make sense? Um, anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about this here. Um, because the Corinthian church, the Corinthians in general, their culture prided themselves with this notion of being wise, of being, uh, being this kind of on the edge of the, the intellectual um, kind of cutting edge, if you will. And it was a problem that Paul will continually address. And he cautions, he cautions them, as well as he cautions us, not to deceive ourselves with our own wisdom or with worldly, mankind, uh, with, with societal wisdom, if you will. It's this idea of humanism, this man-centered philosophy where everything is about us that Paul is asking them to renounce. And this might come as a shock to you, especially if you're on social media or you're at all engaged with uh, culture around us. But the world and everything in it actually doesn't revolve around you. 
I know that that's a shock. I know that that might be a little bit of like, what do you mean, Pastor Nate? (laughs) You are actually not the most important thing in the universe, even if society tells you that. The whole idea of putting yourself first and, and, you know, being true to yourself and following your dreams, all of those things stand in stark contrast to the way of Jesus, who would say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow your dreams. No, he says, follow me, right? It's this this kind of, when we look at the call um, of Jesus, when we look at the way of the kingdom of God, it stands in direct opposition to the values of this world. And so uh, I say this because there's this idea um, where worldly wisdom will tell you to Climb to the top of the corporate ladder, right? Step on anybody you can to get to the very top in your career. Uh, however you have to get there, get there. Chase the American dream, right? You've got to build a family and build a house and build wealth. These things uh, that really are prioritized within our society. Um, it's this mentality of amassing all that you can. Whereas godly wisdom defies that and says to put others before yourself. That the last should be first, right? The first shall be last. To give in order to receive, to die that you might live. This is things that on a surface carnal level make zero sense. That you would find advancement in society by serving others. You'd find advancement in the kingdom, if you will, by serving others and not yourself. That doesn't make sense sense in terms of a carnal, logical approach. But in the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom, it doesn't succumb to the value systems of this world. And I may never be a millionaire. I may never own a home again in Pagosa. Those two things kind of almost seem synonymous right now as we've been looking at the the market. I don't know if anybody else feels that with me, Um, but (laughs) it's just true. Um, but can I tell you that I have found tremendous success in being known by God, knowing him intimately and, and being able to be a pastor here in this community, being surrounded by these beautiful people, getting to, to do life with my family and being blessed by God. Um, I have found tremendous success in that, even if that means I never get a TV show or a, a book signing or if I never get to fly in a private jet. I had this conversation with somebody the other day where, I I was in complete serious mode about the need to purchase another snowmobile for ministry. And you might be here, it's like, that sounds like something a televangelist would say on TBN. And I I was having this heartfelt conversation with a good friend about just the, you know, I feel like this is going to sound crazy coming out of my mouth, but... I think the Lord's directing me to try to buy another snowmobile. It's, it's, it's important for the sake of ministry. And if you know me, you might think that I'm kidding a little bit. But in all honesty, I feel like it's true. I'm not about to pass an offering plate so you guys can buy me a new sled or something like that. That's not the case. Um, wow, this now just kind of paints me like, wow, that guy's crazy, kind of a light. There was going to be a, a funny antidote at the end of this that was going to connect the whole thing. But it's escaping me now. (laughs) And now you're just thinking, wow, okay. (laughs) I'm exposed. (laughs) If anybody would like to, uh, we have a QR code for that, right, Elliot? That'll drop to the drop-down menu for men's retreat. Uh, We all need 850 turbos. And so... (laughs) 
be a measure of your faith to see. You joke about this, but a lot of this third row here is a testament to the fact that, man, we snowboarded together before you ever came to church together, right? I'm just saying, don't, don't dispel the foolish things of the world that God will use to shame the wise. I'm okay if God wants to win all of Pagosa on, on a chairlift. That'd be sick. I'd be, I'd be much... Yeah, anyway, Jesus' name. I'm not going to get off base here. We're going to get through chapter 3 here in 1 Corinthians. Um, and so... Paul continues on here, and he, he, kind, of, he kind of goes on this, uh, uh, this kind of continued exhortation to encourage the Corinthians to stop idolizing and boasting in mere human leaders, right? If you, we'll kind of talk about this again, but there's been that kind of this division that has sprung up in the church where they're, they're kind of identifying with different leaders within the church. They're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. Some would even be saying, I am of Christ. And uh, Paul goes on and says, you know, you need to stop boasting in these mere humans. Stop glorying in them. Stop idolizing them. Because this is kind of the, this is kind of the, this is a, this is kind of the, Paul identifies this as the crux of the problem. These different factions that have sprung up. And it's this sobering thought. It's a warning and uh, I've, I read it this way recently from a pastor that I, I, I greatly admire, a man of God, where he, he frankly says that celebrity Christianity is going to have to die. And uh, my heart was broken this week as, uh, you know, uh, there, there's all kinds of, it feels like every other week, you know, there's another scandal that goes out there on social media or on, on the news or something like that of a different pastor or a different man of God or a different ministry that's now in failure or those things. And it's gotten to the place where I'm not even as much, hear me out here, I'm not even so much shocked or discouraged by the actual moral failures themselves. I'm more disheartened by the fact that it doesn't surprise me anymore when I read of a, a different pastor or something or allegations being kind of distributed out here against these, you know, celebrity pastors and all these different things. And um, I, I think Scripture is pretty clear that God never intended us to idolize ministers. In fact, we get the instruction for the opposite. And I think it's important here to note that Paul doesn't bring correction to Apollos. He doesn't, at least we don't have it in this letter where he, he says, Apollos, man, you need to like figure this stuff out. Or he doesn't tell Peter, man, you know, you need to stop being so popular or these things. He, he brings correction to the people that put them on those pedestals and those platforms. And I, I just, I would let this serve as a caution to us to be careful about who we, who we put up on a platform, who we idolize, if you will, when it comes to ministry. And this is not to say that we don't honor the man of God. This is not to say that we don't receive or recognize when God is using somebody. But the whole notion that we've got pastors and multi-million dollar organizations kind of being the CEOs of different movements, if you will, I don't think it takes a... I don't think we are... 
I think it's just something to be careful with, to be cautious of, because this was something that Paul addresses all the way back in the first century church, to be on guard against elevating man to a place where he never belonged. And I think it's, be, it's helpful for us as Christians, as the church of God, to not place people on a pedestal that should only be reserved for Jesus. Does it make sense? You guys catch my heart behind that? That's all I've got to say on the subject for right now. But Just be careful about who you put on a pedestal and the voices that you allow to speak into your life. So if we're going to keep with this theme of working backwards, uh, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17 here. And it's where, it's where uh, Paul makes this kind of reference to the church as the temple of God. He says this, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. And so very quickly, I don't want us to get confused here with uh, where Paul talks about our bodies being a temple. You guys might immediately like have your mind jump there. Later on in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he'll actually talk about the, the human body being a temple um, and how we should flee from sexual immorality and uses that. But what he's talking about here is he's talking about the collective church. It's this language, you yourselves. Um, it's, a, it's a collective. You together are that temple. And so what he's referring to is the body of Christ. He's referring to the church as the temple of God. Does that make sense? You guys got that? Cool. I know you do. Um, so I would ask this question, what makes the church God's temple? What is the distinctive aspect of the church of being God's temple? And I would answer that is that it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that dwells in the midst of God's people that really is the marking distinctive factor for the church being the temple of God, for the body of Christ being the temple of God. And it's something that God says is sacred, something that he says is holy. It's something that he values. And so without the Holy Spirit, we simply become a social club. We're wasting people's time. If the Holy Spirit is not present when we gather together, we might as well just be having some kind of social like community meeting because it has nothing to do with eternity. But what's distinctive, what's special about the bride of Christ and the gathering of the saints is that we are not just coming together as individual people. We're coming together united with the Holy Spirit, with God himself, who promises to dwell in our midst. That's why when we gather together, and I encourage us before we sing to remind you of the fact that we didn't just all happen, uh, just, we didn't just all kind of happen together and and show up on Sunday at the same time in the same place, and we're here individually. We're here collectively to meet with God Almighty. And that's cool. That's exciting. That should, that should excite you. But that's also in the same way why God takes it so seriously that he says if anybody destroys the temple, he'll destroy them. And what's actively happening, happening here in the church of Corinth, there are divisions, there are factions that have sprung up where the church is no longer united. And Paul's heart here is breaking because he's saying you're destroying the temple of God. 
That the, 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 the house of God is, is being divided because you guys can't grow up. You guys can't get over yourselves. You guys can't think beyond what, what you're currently experiencing and understanding the detriment that is taking place in the house of God. And he's saying, God, it's taking it serious enough, seriously enough that he'll actually destroy them. Because he's that passionate about his bride. He's that passionate about his church. And this is why you can't say you love Jesus but but despise his church. There's so many people that I know that say, you know what, I have church outside. Or, you know what, I just kind of uh, do my own thing. Me and God are good. And I love to meet with Jesus in my home. But you have to read the scriptures and you have, to, you have to see these words of the apostle and you have to dismiss them if you think that God isn't passionate about his church. That Jesus isn't passionate about his bride. It's his, it is his tool. It is his chosen vessel to bring about change in this world is his bride. And he takes it seriously and he says that anyone that comes against and attempts to destroy that, if he destroys what I have established in my church, I'm going to destroy them. That's a big deal. I don't ever want to, I don't want to think about that. So be careful, friends. When you kind of begin to slip into this place where division starts to stem up and you see churches split and all kinds of craziness start to take place, understand that that breaks God's heart and he's very serious about the unity of his church. He's very serious about his presence and his spirit marking the body of believers. Paul is saying this divisiveness is destroying the work of God in Corinth. The bickering, the quarreling, the envy, the strife. Paul says it's got to stop. There's no room for this here. If God's spirit is present, there's no room for any of this other junk. So I think now would be a great time to draw a distinction between these different examples that we're looking at. I mentioned there's three different examples that Paul uses to describe the church. And uh, if we're going chronologically, I know we're working backwards, but he first describes it as a field, right? Here in this passage of scripture, and then he'll go on to describe it as a building. And then lastly, he describes it as a temple. And so while the first two are pictures where he talks about the church being like a field or the church being like a building, here, the one that we just talked about, he very much clearly says the church is the temple. He says you yourselves are the temple. And what what that means is where uh, the picture of the temple is the actual building that was constructed itself. That, that's, that's the metaphor. That's the picture for God's presence dwelling with his people. The reality now for us is that God's presence dwells with us, that we are the temple. Does that make sense? Uh, hopefully, that, hopefully that makes sense. Uh, I wrote this, that the physical constructed temple was the picture back in the Old Testament. But God's dwelling in us today is the reality. And so 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9, we're going to look at what he talks about when he talks about the field. And so now we're going backwards again. You guys tracking with me? I realize it's just kind of a little disjointed here, but it's intentional. So he says, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. 
Now the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. And so Paul here is pointing out that different leaders, there are different ministries within the body of Christ, different people that have different roles, but ultimately the same goal. I kind of like to think about it as, um, I'm not a football guy, so this will break down at some point, and you're going to be like, that doesn't make sense, Pastor Nate. But I think I have enough of an understanding of how sports teams work with coaching that I can make this kind of uh, examination. I do know for the fact that God is real because the Broncos beat the Chiefs last week. (laughs) That's not a testament to my faith or anything like that. That was me. I spoke with my mother-in-law that there's, I wasn't even going to watch the game or even listen to it because I knew that there was no way uh, that the Broncos could win. And then I'm just, I'm little faith. I feel like there's a rebuke. Um, but right, the Broncos coaching staff has been hired so that they can win football games, right? And so, right, you've got a general owner and then you've got like a head coach, but then there's even other coaches beneath that, right? You have an offensive coach, you have a defensive coach. There's probably special team coaches and, and those things. And please forgive me. It, can you tell I didn't play football in high school? Um, <laughs> all of that kind of is figured out. And, but they're all collectively on the same team, right? The defensive coach and the offensive coach are on the same team. And their goal is to work together to win football games, right? And so I need you to understand that the role of the pastor and the role of the evangelist and the role of different spiritual leaders within the body of Christ they, they might have different roles when it comes to discipleship and different giftings when it comes to actually building up the body of Christ. But the ultimate goal for us is still the same, and that is to win football games. No, I'm kidding. That, that is for us to see God's kingdom come and Jesus be glorified, right? And so we may have different roles, we may have different positions, but ultimately the goal is still the same. So I I joked last week where, you know, in our congregation, in our setting, if Paul was writing this letter, and I'm thankful this isn't the case, but, you know, we have a bunch of Jesus Cafe people here, right? We have people, we have people that are really into deeper projects. Some people are really in on Wednesday night. Some of you guys are at every single thing that we do, and I'm, man, you guys rock. But it would be like, it'd be essentially as silly as saying, you know, we have people in our church that rise up and say, you know what, I am of Stan Gill, and I am with the Jesus Cafe, and we have people that are, I am of the worship team, so I am of Adam Perez. And then you have people that are like, I love the teaching of the word, so I am of Pastor Nate. And having these different factions and this split that rises up based upon personality and based upon leaders that they were following. And Paul is saying, how immature, how foolish are you that this is what you think this is about? And he, he goes on to kind of illustrate here that there are some people that are called to plant seed and some people that are called to water and they all have different roles and it's our job to do them diligently as if the Lord himself has called and instructed us to do it. But the problem I see too often is that we've got people that have been called to plant seed that actually want to water. And there are people that want to water that are actually called to plant seed. And we see this thing because we see other people operating in their gifts and we want to mimic and and be just like them that we might try to do something that God never called us to do. And at the end of the day, everything gets messed up. And what we see here is God has intentional roles for different people that'll look very different. Can I tell you that Stan ministers in such a way that I'll probably never 
function in, <laughs> in, in any kind of like capacity. But that doesn't mean that we're not on the same team, right? We're on the same team. And we're seeing Jesus glorified as a result. And, and Paul is just kind of addressing this silliness. But I love this because I love verse 7 where he says, So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. Think about a farmer. There's only so much a farmer can do, right? He can be diligent about tending the soil. He can fertilize things. He can plant the crop. He can water it. He can irrigate it. But at the end of the day, he actually can't do anything in his own power to make that seed grow. He can change the environment around that seed, but God is ultimately the one that springs forth the life that generates lasting fruit, right? And that is the same thing with us, and I love that because that's so freeing for me as a minister and understanding that I don't have to change people. I only have to introduce them to the one who can initiate that change. Does that make sense? That should be freeing. That should lift a burden off of you as ministers of the gospel as well, because it's not your responsibility to make people change. God says, I'll do that. (laughs) We're just to be faithful with what he's called and asked us to do. It reminds me of what is written in Psalm 127, that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Can I tell you that I'm grateful for this church and for this ministry because it's not a reflection of all the things that Pastor Nate did, right? Or what Pastor Adam did with the worship team or anything like that. God is growing his church. and We're simply trying to be faithful to plant the seed, to water it where we can and letting God yield the increase. And I'm so grateful for that. But verse 8 kind of is interesting because he goes on to say this that each will be rewarded according to their labor. That's an interesting thought, right? That actually serves as the entire point of where we're trying to gather together this morning as where where we're directed and, and this will hopefully connect this week and last week to where there's an aha moment that makes sense. And so you need to understand that there is real reward for serving Jesus faithfully. And it's so much more than just not going to hell. There is real tangible reward for the followers of Jesus, for the people of God. And it's plastered throughout scripture where there is this promise of a great reward. And Paul kind of begins this kind of analogy by explaining the church to be like a building. And he Pick up in verse 10. He says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than that which has already been laid, which is Christ Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. Notice here, there's two different kind of There's two different kind of materials that are being used. One is something of like intrinsic value and worth. And the other is something that is more kind of just a natural thing. We'll talk about that in a little bit here. But this wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. You need to understand something. Paul makes it very clear here in this kind of teaching here. He says, 
uh, as believers, as followers of Jesus, the foundation of our life is 100% the cross and what Jesus did on Calvary for us. There's no other foundation that can be laid. It is all because of Jesus, and it's a good foundation. But what we do with our lives after the fact, what we do with what God has already done, uh, Paul equates that to building upon a foundation. And he makes it very clear that our workmanship will be judged. It's something that uh, we refer to as the judgment seat of Christ. How many of you guys are familiar with this language? How many of you have heard this before? If you were here last week, I, I briefly touched on it. But the judgment seat of Christ is something, it's a, it's a time and place in the future. It hasn't happened yet. Where every believer, where everyone that has said yes to Jesus will have to give an account for what we did with what Jesus gave us. This should be a sobering thought for you. Now, I, I don't... Read 2 Corinthians with me. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul would say this, where he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So it judges what we actually do, right? Track with me here. It judges the things that we've done, whether they were good or bad. So it, it also judges the motivation and the intent of our actions. Not just, what, what, not just what we did, but why we did them. This is the point that I'm trying to make this morning. It is possible to have a saved soul in a wasted life. And last week when I was talking about the fact that there have been many of us where Jesus has kind of opened the cage and set the captive free and we've been content with still living like we were bound. We may be, we may be saved. You know, we may, be, we may be excited that we're not going to hell, but we're living short of the promise of God. And it is possible to have a saved soul and a wasted life. And that's terrifying to me. I, I used to use this kind of description um, or this example from the scriptures from the Old Testament where we see, uh, right, Israel is getting ready to make way into the promised land across the Jordan and not all of them want to enter in and we actually wind up with some of the tribes settling back because they were, they were content with living free from Egypt but they were unwilling to enter into the fullness of the promise of what God had for them in the promised land. And I, and I think this illustration still rings true for us that a lot of us want to get free from the things that once held us bound, but we're not quite ready to live in the fullness of what God has promised us and lived into, step into life and life abundantly, which is what Christ says that he gives to us. And I look at this and I see as Paul talks about building upon a foundation and, and establishing and actually having labor and work to show, um, it's going to be tested by fire. And my, my big concern, friends, for most of us in this room is not where you'll go when you die. I'm thankful that most of you and I'm hoping all of you have made a decision to say yes to Jesus and to follow him. And this is my big concern for myself is that I'm going to have to stand before God and give an account for what I did with the time that was allotted to me. 
And I'm not afraid of him, you know, saying, depart from me, I never knew you. The words that I fear are, man, Nate, I love you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. But look at what you could have accomplished if you would have simply said yes to me. Look at what you could have accomplished if maybe you would have put down the phone and got off social media and spent a little more time in my word. Look what you could have accomplished if you would have been faithful to share my word with those that I entrusted with your care or those people that I put in your path. And and, and I want to be clear, friends, I see so much wasted potential in so many people's lives where they're content with the fact that, you know what, Jesus saved my soul and I'm not going to hell anymore but they're not living their lives for the glory of God. They're not giving everything that they have, everything that they are, so that Jesus might be glorified. Because there is a real real sense of sacrifice. There is a real sense of denying oneself when it comes to living our lives for the glory of God. So this idea of this judgment seat I need you to, it's not about punishment here. This is, Jesus has already dealt with our sin. The judgment seat is about reward. Think of it kind of like the county fair. How many of you guys have put stuff in the county fair? This was my first year of doing something in the county fair. I did some photography and I found out that if you really want to actually get like a, like a big ribbon in the county fair, that if you enter in photography at least, you should probably take photos with like a cell phone and have it be really grainy and not good light, and the subject be a little blurry, then you might have a chance. Um, I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> Pray for your pastor. <laughs> he needs to experience hearing, <laughs> healing. But think about that. The judges in the county fair, they're not, they're not like punishing subpar photos, right? They're not, they're not there to you know, judge entries and you know what, they're like, that one needs to be cast into the fire. They're there to reward what is good, right? In the same way, this idea of judgment that we see here is not about salvation. This is not about whether or not believers are going to heaven or to hell. This judgment, the, the bima is the Greek word for it, and it was this elevated position where a Roman, uh, where a Roman official would sit upon this seat um, and it was, uh, it was typically in the context of sports games, of athletic events. If you guys remember from some of our history about Corinth, uh, they had uh, the second largest kind of athletic game, second only to the Corinthian games, were second only to the uh, Olympics. And, and so you'd have all these kind of sports analogies. But if there were competitors, if there were athletes, they would literally crown victors from the Bema seat. And they would judge whether or not a champion was worthy of a reward or not. And that, that's kind of the imagery that is being used here that Paul is referencing when he's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to be a place where God will instill reward upon his followers. It's something that you should take um, comfort in if you're a follower of Jesus. I think of Paul who suffered immensely for, for the sake of the cross. Uh, and if you read the author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, uh, we find some comfort here in these words that God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. I think, I think those kind of uh, 
those kind of promises of Scripture ground us in understanding that God is faithful to reward those who serve Him. And that there's never a sacrifice that's made for the sake of the cross and for the sake of the kingdom that God doesn't recognize and take note of. And remember, and there will come a day where we are, we are bestowed with a crown, where we are bestowed with reward. And I, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to look at what takes place in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and, take, and look, at, look at what happens at the end of the book where elders are casting down crowns in worship before God because ultimately any reward we receive is given back to God for His glory. Because it's not about us, we understand that, that wouldn't make sense in light of Scripture, but the way that we live our lives actually brings glory to the Father and brings glory to Jesus. And so my encouragement to you is if Jesus is actually worthy, if he really is as good as we say that he is, our lives need to come in alignment with that fact. And the things that we say, the things that we do, the ways that we act, the way that the church is united needs to reflect the fact that God is actually good. What we do and our motive for doing it is going to be tested by fire. And that purifying fire of God will burn up everything that is not of Him. We won't be punished for what was not done rightly unto the Lord. I want to be clear here. At the judgment seat of Christ, it is not about punishment. Those things are simply going to be burned up. And there's going to be nothing left to share. There's going to be nothing left to show for it. It's going to be as if we never even did them. We will simply be rewarded for what remains, for what's been tested and tried and is still there. But I think there are going to be some of us on that day where we're disappointedly we're going to arrive thinking that you know we've done these great things for God and find out at the judgment seat of Christ that really we did nothing. And there's nothing left to show for him because the things that we built were not built appropriately and they weren't built in accordance with his will and we weren't actually living our lives for his glory. So if there was one question, if there was one charge that I would, I would ask that you leave this place with today is to allow the Holy Spirit to examine the building blocks of your life. Is the life that you're living, the life that you're building actually reflective of the worthiness of God. Because there is going to come a day where we will have to stand and give an account, where our actions are going to be judged. The things that we did in this life, whether good or bad, are going to come under the scrutiny of the cross. I love the way that Leonard Ravenhill would put it. He says, are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? Because following Jesus is so much more than just not going to hell. He desires our lives completely surrendered to Him. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to find more of our messages, get connected with our church, or partner with us financially, you can find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Thanks again, and have a blessed week.